I remember a number of years ago being in Taipei, Taiwan, and looking at that towering 101 building. And if you look at that very large, tall building from a distance, and you pay careful attention to it, you'll notice that if you look carefully, it looks like it's moving. It looks like it's tilting back and forth. In fact, if you look at any large, tall building, you'll notice that it has some sway and flex. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's the first time I remember learning about this. But every tall building is built to flex under weather conditions. And especially in places like Taiwan, because it experiences earthquakes, it experiences typhoons. And so this very tall building needs to be able to be strong, but it also needs to be flexible in order to withstand natural occurrences. One of the design features is this 660 metric ton steel pendulum that serves as this kind of uh, readjustment of the weight as the building is being swung around by wind. It sways between the 92nd and the 87th floor. You can actually go up and you can see it. It's like this large, massive, they call it a damper. And it functions whenever the building is pushed in one direction, the pendulum shifts the other way to offset the weight to keep it from flexing beyond safety. It, it actually, you can see it moving to secure the building and withstand strong gusts of weather. That's, it, I looked at that, I thought about that this past week because that's a really strong depiction of resilience. It's the ability to recover from difficult circumstances. And as we look at the book of Philippians, two themes that we'll see threaded together throughout the book are resilience and joy. And both actually are in full view in this passage, but I want to spend today unpacking the concept of resilience, this ability to withstand gusts of weather. To Actually, literally, it means to bounce back after being knocked down. If you want to think about not just buildings, but one thing from nature that actually is beautifully depicting this idea of being pushed, but always coming back to form is actually bamboo. You see it being pushed and it can actually bend all the way down, even touch the ground and it'll always come back. It won't snap. It's a beautiful picture of resilience. I want to look at resilience from the two circumstances that Paul addresses here. And even though those circumstances may not be exactly the kind of circumstances we find ourselves in, there are principles in each one. The first circumstance is that we see Paul living resiliently is prison. Look at verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul wrote four of his letters from prison. They're called the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And he's there in prison because he's defending the gospel. If you read the, the track, the story of how Paul ends up being dragged from prison to prison, it starts with, uh, in Jerusalem with Jewish leaders who are against him, really don't want him preaching the gospel. Then he gets brought up to Roman courts, and then he has to appeal to his Roman citizenship. And that's what gets him on this long way, very dangerous path towards Rome. You read about him getting passed from one government official to the next. And finally, when he gets to Rome, he's put in prison. And for Paul, prison is a very different concept than what we typically picture when we think about jails or prison. Certainly, it would have been in an enclosed, locked space. But one unique feature of this imprisonment is that they would be changed 
individually to another guard. At all hours of the day, these guards took shifts being chained to Paul all day long. Always chained. Go to the bathroom, he's chained. Sleeping, he's chained. Eating, he's chained. When he's praying, he's chained. When he's praising God, he's chained to someone. And Paul is saying that his imprisonment, his being chained, has really served the advancement of the gospel. That even though it, it is a show of Caesar and Rome's power, of the manipulative power of Jewish religious authority, that's a, certainly on display here. But ultimately, what's happened to him is not serving the purposes of Rome or even the Jewish religious authority. His ultimate view of what's happening to him is that there's someone else that's above all of those power authorities in this world, that God is using this for the purpose of advancing the gospel. He sees that nothing can stop this word. Nothing can thwart the advance of this good news getting out. When you read this, I know my natural reaction, if I ever found myself, even in something that was even remotely close to what Paul was experiencing, my, my question would be, God, where are you? Why have you forgotten me? And those are certainly important questions to ask God. But Paul, as he works through his theology into his circumstances about who God is and what God's word is doing in the world, he is asking a very different question that I think we need to work into our processing of life. Not just, where are you, God? That's an important question to ask and answer. Not just, have you forgotten me? I think it's important that we can ask that question. We see it in the Psalms. But very important question to work into our processing of life is, how is God at work? Because if God is sovereign over all things, that nothing happens without his understanding, and he works all things for the good of those who love him, we must ask the question, how is God at work? Paul believes that this son of God loves him, saved him, and is working out God's glory and his good. And so he's asking the question, how is God at work? And he's not spinning this superficially. He's not dressing up a pig with lipstick to make it seem like it's better than it actually is. He can truly look at imprisonment as something terrible, frustrating, something he would rather not be in, but he can look at that with this perspective that Christ and his mission are still being worked out in his circumstance. What's amazing about this section that you have, just in verses 12 to 14, just those few verses there, is that typically in a, in a letter like this, in this time period, this is where someone would tell you what's going on in their life. And that's what Paul is doing. He's telling them about his imprisonment because they know this because they sent Epaphroditus to him. But it's amazing, even though he's giving an update about himself and he uses a lot of first-person pronouns, it tells us very little about Paul, which indicates to us that Paul cannot look at himself without seeing his life intertwined with the advancement of the gospel. He views what's ever happening to him in light of what's happening with the gospel. That's what enables him to see this very annoying, very frustrating circumstance with not just annoyance and frustration, but something beyond that, a perspective that it's serving the advancement of God's purposes. His personal life is so taken up 
with Christ in the cause of the gospel, even this imprisonment is something that is turning out for God's purposes. That's incredible. That's why later on he can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. He, he is, his identity is being wrapped up in God and his purposes. Uh, we see two ways that the gospel is advancing because of his imprisonment. He describes one in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's first advancing with the very guards that are responsible for restraining and being chained to Paul. They're estimated around 9,000 guards during this time. It doesn't mean that every single one of the 9,000 was chained individually to Paul, but you imagine the few that were in responsible for this duty that they would start talking about Paul. Certainly Paul would be sharing the gospel. Certainly he still would be praying and praising Jesus. He has a pattern of doing this. And word begins to travel. Have you heard of this person? He's in prison for being a follower of Jesus. As we looked at two weeks ago, Paul certainly does this when he's in prison. The start of the Philippian church, one of the first early members of the church was converted through this kind of experience where Paul was in jail with Silas. And as they're praying and preaching the gospel through their singing, they, the, this earthquake happens and all the, the chains are loosened and the gates in many ways could be opened and they could escape. And the jailer's about to kill himself and Paul says, no, don't do that. They're not going to run because if they got out, the jailer knows his life is already over and that jailer becomes one of the first members of the Philippian church. And I bet you if that jailer was alive, hearing and reading this letter that was being sent from Paul from Rome to the Philippians, he would have been like, man, whoever's chained to Paul, that person's going to come to Jesus. I bet you Paul's going to convert some of those 9,000 guards. I mean, imagine what Paul would be saying to these guards as he's being chained and has to eat with them, has to be with them, has to do everything with them. You know why I'm here, right? This, this person that I'm talking about and I'm sharing the reason that I'm here, this Jesus is actually killed by some of your co-workers. But you know what he said on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this Jesus was then buried. He really did die, but death couldn't hold him. While all of us thought that he was gone, God was conquering sin and death. And three days later, Jesus rose victorious. Even death could not hold him. Even this imprisonment that Paul was experiencing couldn't stop the advance of the gospel. It was even spreading among the guards. It's also spreading with the church, not just with the guards. It spreads in the wider Christian community in Rome. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Obviously, if one of your key leaders uh, in the faith is imprisoned or put in a difficult circumstance, that would, you know, justifiably cause you to be afraid, timid even. But in this case, as Paul doesn't give up on the gospel, as they see Paul staying strong and resilient, 
As he's being blown, the the pendulum at the center of his life, the gospel keeps him up. They're stirred to preach Christ and step up. And think about this. This is actually not just true in this moment in history. Look, if this is why I love reading about church history. If you've you've never, when you think about history, most of us probably remember history class from elementary, middle school, high school. If you had to take history class in college and you remember probably just trying to memorize a bunch of facts just to get through so you could pass, get whatever grade you needed to move and move on. But if you've never taken the time to read church history, I encourage you to do so. It will, you will see how the gospel, how the church continues to grow even in difficult, in fact, it mostly grows in difficult circumstances. That's why Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, he said, the, the, the seed that is growing the church is the blood of the martyrs. Every single one of these apostles, aside from John, were martyred. If you, if you read about historical moments where we lost significant church leaders, you'll see the emboldening and the stirring of the church right after Jim Elliot was killed. You saw out of Wheaton College for the next decade, this massive rise of missionary effort. Think about what God is doing there. He's taking the imprisonment of one man preaching and now using that to multiply the preaching of the gospel through that timid church. Maybe dozens, if not hundreds of people now more boldly talking about the very Jesus that put Paul in prison. Think about how amazing that is. Now, how can Paul do this? How can we do this? How do we have this kind of resilience? We've got to ask this question. How can, how can Paul look at his imprisonment, the seeming stop of his ministry, with this incredible perspective of confidence that God is using that to get the gospel out? I mean, we know that Paul, being a Pharisee, understands the Old Testament that he's got these historical moments in God's word in his life, in his heart. He sees and he believes that God always works in these unexpected circumstances. He, like many of us who are familiar with Genesis, remember Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, imprisoned for years, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And yet, in the end, he has this God orientation in which he can see that his brothers meant all that they did for evil and yet God can use even the most evil of actions and intentions and bring about the good of his people and his own glory. God can work even in the most desperate of circumstances. And we see that most highly focused on the cross There's no situation worse where the Son of God comes and to become part of his creation out of the act of love and his own people kill him with hatred and pride. The cross is the ugliest display of our sin and yet God can turn that into the very grace of our salvation. It's on the cross where Jesus takes our sin and blots it out forever. He can take the most horrible act of murder and execution, and bring about victory. 
And so Paul knows this. He knows this about biblical history. He knows this most highly in Jesus. And so when he looks at his imprisonment, yes, it's frustrating. Yes, he doesn't want to be in prison. He's not saying prison is great. But he can also see God at work in all of that. Paul shows us that if you want resilience in your life, you have to see beyond your mere circumstances through this perspective, this lens of Jesus, his cross, and the resurrection. You have to see your life as intertwined with the purposes of the gospel. Because even his imprisonment, right? He, he, he can think about this. He is a captive prisoner, yes. And yet he can see through the purposes of the gospel that even though he's a captive prisoner, he now also has a captive audience with the guards. He looked at his circumstances through this lens of the gospel so that even though religious and governmental leaders were forcing him to be chained, he's actually getting to the place that God wants him to go, the place he always wanted to go, which is Rome. He got to Rome on Rome's dollar. Yes, it was through chains. Yes, it was through less than ideal circumstances, but God was still working out his purposes of getting him to the place he wanted to go all along. And even though we're not finding ourselves in a imprisoned or chained circumstance, I think there's a principle here that directly can be applied to anything that's happening in your life. Because his imprisonment was an unwanted circumstance placed against his will that he could see the purposes of God at work in. And every one of us, whether right now or tomorrow probably, will face some circumstance thrust upon you that is against your will. And many of us will ask the question, and I think we need to wrestle with these questions. It's a sermon for another time, but why are you doing this, God? Why does it feel like you're not here? Those are good, important questions to ask. But you need to work into your questioning, how are you at work? If your gospel is still advancing, if your purposes are still good and true, how are you at work, God? What will it take for you to look at the circumstance that you are thrust into that you don't want to see that in light of Jesus? I mean, in the pandemic, all of us, right? We, we were thrust, and many of us still function like this, right? We still feel like we're thrust into isolation or separation. Right? We can't really compare quarantine to imprisonment, though, because... Many of us, we have, you know, I had Disney Plus and plenty of Trader Joe's orange chicken in my freezer, so it's not the same. I don't want to make that comparison, but what does it mean for you to say that my sickness, that my family member's sickness can be used for the advancement of the gospel, to serve the advancement of the gospel? Is it possible for you to look at your season of unemployment as serving the advance of the gospel? Or your annoying boss as a situation that can be used to advance the gospel? As God uses the situation of singleness that is thrust upon you that you don't want and using that to advance the gospel or your difficult marriage to advance the gospel, or your very difficult children to advance the, or your lack of children to advance the gospel. God is still at work. 
in all of those things. And he can serve the advancement of the gospel. And that's not just putting spin on it. Look at scripture, look at history. If you are willing to see that God is good and still in control, you will see that he can use any even unwanted circumstance to advance his gospel. That's how Paul is resilient. He's seeing his imprisonment through this lens of advancing the gospel. That's the pendulum at the the height of his heart that's keeping him stable from breaking over in the midst of a storm. A second circumstance we learn a lot from is the rivalrous or envious preachers in Rome or his rivalry. Look at verses 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. We need to clarify a few things about this. First, these people that are preaching from envy and rivalry, they're not false teachers or non-Christians proclaiming a false gospel. Paul's not saying, oh, whatever, they're just, as long as they, you know, they're saying something about Jesus. No, he's, if people get the preaching of the gospel wrong, he never stops to confront them. He has strong words for people who preach falsely. You read about that in Galatians. These, These people who Paul is talking about in verses 15 to 18, they are actually genuine believers who are proclaiming a true gospel, but are doing it from wrong motives and bad character. Second, when he says he has joy, again, he's not joyful about his imprisonment. He's not joyful about these people who are afflicting him. He deeply feels that still. But he has resilience because his joy is anchored in something that supersedes everything that's going on around him. His, his desire, his joy is found in the gospel advancing, not just the circumstances he finds himself in. Third, this group of leaders, uh, these preachers who are preaching Christ from envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, it, what we imagine them doing is that they're probably taking advantage of the fact that Paul was in prison to build themselves up, to build their own platform and position. When Paul says they afflict him, They're basically treating Paul like a competitor rather than a co-laborer in the gospel. I think when I read this, this is deeply convicting to my own heart, especially those of us who are in ministry. You know, this reveals at least two categories of preachers, if we're all honest, or two categories of pastors. And we kind of have to live in tension of this. On our best days, a pastor or an elder of a church or leader of a church sees that they are a supporting actor to the great drama and story where Jesus is the center. On our worst days, we function as if Jesus is the supporting actor to which I am the center of the story. And sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference with a leader, right? You could have the same sermon, same way, same attitude, same everything, and yet it's only really a small but very profound thing to which it can be all about them even if they're saying it's all about Jesus. Paul shows us here that 
our story as leaders, as proclaimers of the gospel, whether we're pastors or just members of a church, we only really become significant when we find ourselves as supporting actors in the story about Jesus. But these rivals of Paul, they're, they're trying to make a name for themselves. They're probably saying, well, I, maybe they didn't like some particular secondary aspect of Paul's ministry, his philosophy of ministry, his style. And they're like, well, look at where that got him. You should follow me instead. They were building their own names, their own audience, their own platform. Paul's concern, though, is that the gospel gets out. The true one gets out. Whether it's proclaimed by him or even preached by those who have wrong motives, who are against him. We see his resilience because he sees his rivalry, his difficult relationship with other leaders in that town as underneath the story that is about Jesus because he knows the story is not about him. He knows as long as Jesus gets famous, as long as he's center stage, as long as Jesus' audience grows, that's good and I will rejoice. He doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't retaliate. And I think that's the heart of resilience when it comes to difficult people in the church. And I mentioned a little bit last week, right? You're always going to have difficult relationships in the church. You're going to have people that are very easy to love. You're going to have people who are very hard to love. You're going to have people who you really need to forgive. You're always going to have that kind of relationship in the church because we're bringing people who are broken, who are sinful, who have things that they do, who are still going to harm each other. In fact, I said last week, I'll repeat it again. If you have no relationships in the church to which you are never harmed, you're probably not committed to that church because you never put yourself in a place to which you could be harmed. Now, those of you who have been harmed, that's certainly a very serious thing. We take that to something we need to lead through and care for. It doesn't mean that we dismiss the harm that occurs, but very likely if you're getting together with a whole bunch of broken people still and you commit to them and you're vulnerable with them and you try and do ministry and life with them, you will eventually be hurt because we're still broken people. But Paul, he's resilient because he looks at these people who are harming him directly right now, building their own platform at the expense of Paul. He's resilient because he knows it's not about him. And he can even wish these envious preachers well. In this, he rejoices because he sees the gospel advancing. I think we lack resilience when it comes to relationships, especially in the church. And this is why you see a lot of people turn over in churches. We're not exempt from that. We still struggle with that too at sunset. I think we lack resilience because we think it's about me, even though we say it's about Jesus. It's sadly true even of people who are in pastoral ministry, of people who are in leadership. We end up looking at other churches or other leaders as competitors or people doing things who are, you know, not the way we like to when we try and put them down. We hold grudges, we hold competition, and that's why we get derailed. Satan doesn't need to attack a church that's really not about Jesus because if it's all about you, you're not going to do anything for Jesus anyways. Paul, rather than holding grudges, he's focused on the advance of the gospel. Or too often, I in my own heart, and maybe us as, a, as the church, we focus on getting our way or retaliation or being right. Again, Paul is not saying he loves being attacked. He doesn't want his character and reputation to take a blow, but he doesn't allow them to 
to control his life. He doesn't allow resentment and grudges to rule his heart because his heart is focused on the advancement of Jesus. I've heard it before where if you try and hold a grudge or you just hold on to your discontentment or retaliation against someone else, it's like going to to have a feast. And yet the only skeleton you'll find at the end of that feast is going to be yours. That's what grudges, that's what retaliation does. And Paul, he's resilient because he's not allowing the rivals and the personal injury to him cause him to turn inward because he knows it's not about him. This came, and how did Paul know this? I think it's instructive for us if you look at how Paul processes himself in other places of his writings. Paul regularly is deeply aware of his own sin. I think that's something we need to work into our lives if we want to be resilient. Paul never forgot that Christ saved him from the depths. That's why he can write about himself honestly, not hyperbolically. He believes, according to his view, he is the worst sinner he knows. In fact, the closer he got to Jesus, the more deeply aware of his sin he became. And that's why he can look at the rivals and rejoice in the gospel because he knows his own brokenness in his own heart to do the same. We we need more of this perspective and this this kind of understanding of ourselves because we, we tend to want to put ourselves at the pedestal instead of Jesus. Paul also didn't just know about the gospel. He didn't just talk about it. He deeply had it affect his being. He knew, as Spurgeon once said, obviously Spurgeon was not alive during this time, but Spurgeon said it, I think it's helpful for us to process, that Jesus loves to forgive more than you love to sin. Let Let that sink in for a second. Paul not only knew how deep of a sinner he was, he also knew how abounding the love of God was. Jesus loves to forgive more than you will ever love to sin. That's good news. I mean, I've heard Tim Keller say the same concept very similarly. You are probably way worse than you ever knew, ever would know. And you are also more loved than you ever can dare to hope. Same concept. And Paul understood this. He understood how low he was on his own. He also knew how high he was because of Jesus. And to the degree that you can internalize this truth and believe this, you will become someone who's resilient. You will become someone who can't be offended. You will become someone where even if your reputation is down, but Jesus is getting out, you will be rejoicing. And that's what we need more of today, right? People who are, you know what it means to be salt and light in today's world? Especially in the very quick responding social media, the, the quick reacting world that we find ourselves in. We, you know what it means to be salt and light? One unique aspect I think would be true of genuine followers of Jesus. You will be resilient because you will not be so easily offended. You don't need to stand up for everything that comes out. You don't need to respond to everything that is an attack against you personally. You can respond with grace and tenderness because you know the story is not ultimately about you. Let me tell you two stories to kind of unpack this as we close. One from just a a situation that just came to mind. It's really not Christian at all, but I think it's kind of interesting and powerful. 
I remember, actually, I, I still, I don't really watch much sports these days. Someone was asking me if I watch basketball. I usually explain it like basketball, I, I liked playing it as a kid. And I remember liking it in middle school, but eventually as I would, you know, my doctor would tell me in middle school, you know, you're on this normal kind of, you know, height, uh, growth chart. And then I kind of just stopped at like ninth grade. So then basketball in terms of enjoyment just kind of dropped for me dramatically. So I think the last time I really intentionally watched basketball, besides trying to, you know, follow along for the Warriors to, to love our people in our church, uh, was 2004 when the Pistons beat the Lakers. Uh, that's the last time I really watched. But I, the one sport I do enjoy really watching, which I don't think anyone really watches much of, is tennis. I played a lot as a kid. I remember watching Nadal beat Federer in 2008, that Wimbledon win. He actually won a Grand Slam that year. He beats him, and he makes this speech. You know, at the end, every single time, the victor gives a speech. And what's unique and powerful about Nadal's speech, you can look this up, he spends that speech primarily talking about how great Roger Federer is, how he needs Federer for the game of tennis, how he's the greatest of all time. He just beat him two more times than Federer beat him. He, he is holding this trophy and he's giving the attention back to the guy he just beat. This, is this incredible power in giving attention away, giving glory away, giving power away where he knows even in the story of tennis, it's not just about him. Now, that's obviously not a Christian example, but I think there's an incredibly powerful illustration of that. Let me give you a Christian one. I remember talking to a young church planter, a friend of mine. He planted a church in another city. It became the church. It was huge beyond his expectations. It was the church for about seven years where everyone just wanted to go to it to find out what was going on. All the young people went there. All the people who were dissatisfied with their churches went there. And it became huge. And then this long-standing, 20-something-year, tenured, solid pastor and well-known in that community reaches out to this young church planter who has now the It Church. He says he wants to meet. Of course he does say yes because he says yes out of respect. He's also a little afraid. But they meet. And the pastor says to him, you know, it's really great to see your church grow. And I wanted you to know that there are over 1,000 people who've left my church for yours. And now this young pastor's like, oh my gosh, what is this pastor going to do to me? But this old pastor said to him, I wanted to come over here and look you in the eye and tell you to love them well. Because I love them. And Jesus loves them more than you and I do. And I want you to love them well. When my friend told me that story, it just, it both broke us because we understood how much this pastor loved Jesus, loved his people more than his own platform, his own ministry. That's resilience. That's where you can find joy because the story is not about you. Friends, if you want resilience, you have to be able to see your story, your identity, so intertwined with the purposes of God that even things that you're thrust into, you can see them as working out for God's purposes. If you want to be resilient with difficult people, especially in the church, who have wrong motives, sometimes even hurt you, you're going to have to see something beyond you being at the center of the story. I know that's not easy. I can't just tell you 
you know, to be more resilient. It actually doesn't work that way. I can't just tell you to forgive people and just move on and rejoice. I mean, it's something I can't force you to do. And so even though I want you to understand resilience, the only way I know you're ever going to get this in your life is to get away from looking at me, get away from looking at yourself even, get away and look at Jesus. Look at his resilience for you. Look at his love, his life for you and trust him. That even though he died, was placed in the tomb, he could defeat death. That Jesus' humiliation will turn out to be the greatest exaltation, as we'll see in Philippians 2. That he could take on the hatred of everyone in the world and extend unending love. That's where we'll find resilience. That's what we need as a church, as we're wrestling through what it means to, to be a church in these weird times. Even as we're struggling to gather again, overcoming these sometimes good, sometimes bad habits that we've formed during the pandemic. How do we re-engage being God's people? How do we become resilient in unwanted circumstances or difficult relationships? Well, it comes when we turn to Jesus. 